brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Happy days are here again, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And although Jeffrey Epstein is now a household name, how quickly we move on from such a high-profile scandal and mysterious cover-up. Even the meme that Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself somehow lost its teeth with time. And when a person who operates an international child trafficking honeypot operation with a Rolodex full of the world's most rich and famous dies in his jail cell, it seems this whole far-reaching, well-connected scandal dies with him. But how far back does this operation go? How many Jeffrey Epsteins have there been, and who has the power to disappear such a high-profile case altogether? Like many of you out there, I wonder if we'll ever get more information. But if similar situations in the past are any indication, we won't. At least not from any mainstream, clearly co-opted sources. But luckily we have people like returning guest Steven Snyder, better known as Recluse, who refused to just sweep this one under the rug, and instead is writing a three-part book series detailing the intelligence connections, the financiers, and the history of these very operations within the U.S. and U.K. governments. His first book in this series is called A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment, which covers the foundation of these tactics and the intelligence networks involved, going back decades further than most people would expect. Of course, Recluse has been covering a lot of recent threads on his blog, Vice Up View, as well, and you can find three other shows with Recluse in the THC archive, most recently one talking about his last book, Strange Tales of the Parapolitical. He's also the host of his own popular podcast called The Farm, and I am psyched to have him back once again to dive into the dark world at depths few dare to go. The parapolitical powerhouse and deep state detective Stephen the Spider Snyder, the recluse himself. How the hell are you, man? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for the great intro there. <laughs> so. uh, I try. I try. That Stephen the Spider Snyder thing, I, I don't know where that came from, but I mean, it just fits. Works, man. As long as it doesn't involve Steve, I'm fine with that. I'm kind of traumatized to the name Steve after that Robin Hitchcock song, Clean Steve. If you've ever heard that, you'll know exactly what I mean. <laughs> well, the last thing I want to do is dig up old trauma, but it is great to talk to you again. This latest book is quite a trip. So much history I was unaware of, so many names I'd never heard. 
It's a lot to take in, but let's get right into it and give the people the overview here, the uh, elevator pitch, as they say. It's a three-part series, and you're doing this kind of chronologically. The first book starts in the 1930s and takes us up to 1964, and I think those dates alone would surprise some people, but why start it there? Well, I mean, essentially that was, from what I could tell, was kind of the genesis of the network that was exposed with Epstein. You know, I kind of came to that conclusion after looking at the histories of some of the families that showed up in Epstein's Black Book, and I was surprised by how many of them also showed up in Perfumo, the infamous scandal in the UK that brought down Macmillan's government in 63. So I started wondering about the connections to that, started looking at that, saw that there were definitely a lot of very compelling leads. And then from there, it's like, well, where did the Perfumo scandal originate from? And I probably could have, I don't know, maybe going back to the Hellfire Clubs and the 18th century with the Whigs and the Jacobite feuds and that type of thing. But for the sake of brevity, I kind of decided to go with the 30s because that was also sort of the origins of the modern, you know, intelligence services and the sort of quasi-private networks that worked as auxilias to them and so forth. So kind of seemed like, I guess, the most logical place to begin without, you know, really belaboring the origins. <laughs> right. It can truly unravel because I'm sure these types of intelligence networks and their compromising of the forward-facing political figures, the ones that we think run the show, you know, the true puppet masters have them basically all by the balls. And uh, I'm sure that is a tale as old as governments itself when you really get into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely a time-honored tradition, that is for sure. <laughs> And as for that title, A Special Relationship, what does that refer to? And why is it so important to understand to get a full picture of an Epstein-like honeypot operation in the modern era? Well, the special relationship is basically a mythos that was created by the British intelligence services and their propaganda efforts during the Second World War. You know, contrary to what we've generally been told, the relationship between the United States and the United Kingdoms had obviously been rather antagonistic at various points in history. There was, of course, the whole rebellion thing, the War of 1812, but it really had continued in a pretty passive-aggressive fashion all the way up to the early 20th century or so. And generally speaking up to that point, for most average Americans in the street, when you thought of a special relationship with a European power, it was France. You know, I mean, the French were who had supported us during our own revolution. They were kind of our brothers at arms and democracy and that type of thing. So this was one of the major things that Sir William Stevenson, and you know, who was a major British intelligence asset, he effectively oversaw all of the British intelligence operations in North America during the Second World War. That was one of the things that he and his cronies had to work towards changing to crush the isolationist sentiment that was so strong in the United States. Of course, the First World War, you know, had not really gone over well with the American populace. And there was a general reluctance to die in yet another European war, and especially for the sake of the British. So, you know, we had to craft this kind of myth of, you know, this time-honored relationship that had existed between the UK and the US. And it was kind of a, a way, I think, to sort of exercise soft power on the American public. And certainly that's a process that still continued to great effect to this day. Of course, you can go back to the 60s with Beatlemania, you know, I mean, the whole 
British rock scene that was so heavily influential, continuing on to the 90s with so many of the comedies and serials and that type of thing. I mean, yeah, it was a major propaganda coup for the British. I mean, something that they've been exploiting really ever since and has been a major way that they've managed to maintain a major world influence despite at least officially losing much of their empire. Mm. Yeah, soft power is such a great term. And that is kind of the name of the game when it comes to these intelligence networks. They don't want you to know how much power they truly wield. And neither do the people they have compromised because the people don't want their secrets exposed either. It just is such a perfect fit. And you can see how this got completely out of control and basically runs the show these days and has for several decades, as you point out in the book. We've talked about the Profumo affair in some of our previous conversations, but it is crazy how the scandal not only parallels the Epstein scandal, but contains some of the same players and intelligence networks, which should definitely tell us something. But let me ask you about that subtitle, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. For me, I have no dog in the fight because my personal politics have nothing to do with the two-party system and the establishment we have. They can all go down. It doesn't matter to me. But the perception is that the Clintons were cozier with Epstein than Trump was, or a name like Roy Cohn would fit in there too. But why give Trump top billing in that subtitle? Well, it was partly just because I think, you know, there's been so much of an attempt to downplay Trump's ties to this network, essentially. I mean, you know, it's the relationship between the Clintons and Epstein, for instance, is so well known. To me, I mean, it almost seems pointless to go on about it. I mean, there are already so many other works that have delved into that topic. I also think, too, though, when you go back and look at some of the longstanding players and the connections that they had to some of the people that Trump was tied in with during his rise in New York in the 1980s, it also provides some interesting insights, you know, to kind of the extent of how these relationships have continued unabated for many decades. Just to give you an example, one guy who shows up and kind of on the outskirts of Perfumo, who later became a major player in kind of the 1980 circles that Trump was a part in, and then later kind of laid the foundation for Brexit, is a guy named Sir James Goldsmith, Sir Jimmy, who's a major press baron and that type of thing, and kind of a sometime frenemy of Robert Maxwell's. They certainly had kind of an odd relationship over the years, and also a relative of the Rothschild family as well. But um, Goldsmith had been kind of in the outskirts of their circles with Ward. And then going into the 1980s, he ended up in the clique with Michael Milken. With Epstein had also been in the outskirts, as had Trump and as had Roy Cohn. And then, of course, later, Goldsmith would put up so much of the funding for the early attempts to get out of the European Union and the UK in the 1990s. And to some extent, uh, you still see a lot of Goldsmith's accolades, including his son-in-law, who have continued to fund Brexit into the 21st century. So, you know, it is this sort of longstanding tradition that some of these guys over the years kept showing up over and over again. And at least on my end of the research, I didn't see those kind of ties to the Clinton family. I mean, they may possibly exist. You know, that's something for other researchers, I think, to explore. But I mean, I kind of felt with my own area of expertise, I could tell a really compelling story about how these networks evolved over the years from the guys that I have been looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very confusing and complex to me when you get into the real depth of these networks. But 
I guess I would sum it up as Bill Clinton was an easy politician to capture, but the string pullers of the rise of Trump are the architects of these operations, which is a much bigger deal. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of like a quasi-private network as well. I mean, to some extent, you could draw parallels to Cambridge Analytica, you know, the sort of modern network that, I mean, was really so responsible for the rise of Trump and Epstein. And to some extent, I mean, I think it's very much a legacy of the same kind of quasi-private intelligence networks that began to emerge in the U.S. and the U.K. in the aftermath of the Second World War. I mean, one of the companies that I dealt with heavily in the first book was obviously the World Commerce Corporation, which to me was you know, almost kind of a prototype for, to some extent, the type of things that you would see later with Cambridge, where you had this vast network of these former intelligence officers from multiple services. I mean, really, it was kind of an international collection of former intelligence officers in both cases with access to phenomenal amounts of money from some of these tycoons and so forth. And just effectively how, you know, these kind of techniques and methods combined with that sort of financing could be used to manipulate national governments. You know, it is a disturbing, you know, a legacy, to put it mildly. And I mean, something that it really, I think the extent of it hadn't dawned on me until I had started to do this research. Right on. And, you know, honestly, I am definitely one of those people who has political fatigue at this point, And I'm a bit surprised that the news media still will not just move on now that the election is over. But I did want to switch gears from the book and talk about this post you recently wrote called The Game, because it might be the most intriguing connection I've heard in a while, that the whole QAnon saga movement was an outgrowth of the Cicada 3301 mystery. It is a fascinating and really fresh thread that I would love to hear more about. Introduce us to this. How are these two things connected? Well, both are, in essence, what are known as alternate reality games or ARGs, ARGs, whatever you want to call them. There was a documentary made about one of the more notable ones of the last decade, the Institute, a couple of years ago, which followed the, I think it was the San Francisco-based ARG, the Jejun Institute. And then there was a more recent one that was from the same people. I think it was in Bright Axiom or something like that. But just to kind of give you guys some you know, perspective on this, and then certainly ARGs have also been used in a lot of popular entertainment, especially shows associated with J.J. Abrams. They did some of them like for Lost. Certainly you can see some of that incorporated like into Westworld and some of the ARGs that they've done to promote that show. As far as Cicada goes, that started, I believe, what, in 2012, 2013, thereabouts. And there's some dispute as to the extent to this guy called Thomas Schoenberger and the role that he had in Cicada in the early days. It seems like most likely he had none whatsoever. But at some point through a process of what is referred to as game jacking. He and some of his associates seem to have taken over aspects of the Cicada puzzles, put their own spin on them. You know, you kind of see that with that, what was it, the bizarre book, the kind of grimoire-looking thing that came out several years after the initial Cicada puzzles and so forth. And it seems like Schoenberger used at least part of the people who had been involved in the you know early ARG for Cicada and have gradually brought them into the QAnon thing as time went on. I mean, a lot of ways it sort of goes back, I think, to Gamergate, 
in this whole process where there was this realization that you had this sort of radicalized group of young men in these gamer circles who could be manipulated possibly towards some political end or other. And I kind of think that that might have been the process that started with recruiting people out of the Cicada game. There have been compelling links showing that Schoenberger is tied to Michael Flynn, Trump's very brief national security advisor at one point, also formerly the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency and also the head of the intelligence services for the Joint Special Operations Command. Flynn had gone into private intelligence, like a lot of these guys, after he was drummed out of the Obama administration. He seems to have also been tied into this broader Cambridge Analytica network that I was talking about before. Schoenberger potentially had some kind of links to Flynn. And then from there, you see this whole QAnon thing starting shortly after Trump had assumed the presidency and also kind of tying into a lot of the you know disinformation that had come out of Pizzagate during the climax of the 2016 election. So, I mean, it's really interesting to see how this sort of gamer culture effectively had been weaponized, I think, to some extent by these elements tied into these private security companies using this ARG format effectively. Yeah, it is really interesting. And for people who aren't aware, Cicada 3301, it emerged on January 4th, 2012 on 4chan, which is a clue in retrospect. And yeah, it's also the whole 4chan connection. Yes. And it's interesting that it was basically nine years almost to the day of the Capitol storming, which was the culmination of QAnon. And basically after that got shut down, it just fizzled out. And, you know, it's about time. But it is interesting that it seems like a nine-year game they played on people And I wanted to dig in a little more to that book you mentioned, because here's the quote from your website where you say the puzzles were allegedly designed to locate highly intelligent individuals. Initially, they largely centered around data security, cryptography, and steganography. But over time, they became more fixated on the occult, incorporating elements such as Freemasonry, Crowley, runes, and even the highly esoteric work of William Blake. This thread reached an apex with the launch of a tie-in book, Liber Primus, which appears to be something between a code book and a grimoire. And I did not know about that tie-in book until reading this, basically. But have you looked into that with any sort of detail? That's pretty intriguing. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is that I think there's only been maybe one or two of the total puzzles and it cracked up to this point. I think there were what, like 90, a hundred or something like that. Essentially like there's one I think laid out on like each page. Obviously it's got a lot of very elaborate esoteric symbolism to it and so forth. And there has been quite a bit of a dispute, you know, as to whether or not it was actually intended to be a part of the, you know, original Cicada 3301 game, whether it was just something that was tacked on later by the group that Schoenberger was connected with. Of course, there was that documentary that was made about Cicada that came out a couple of years ago. Maybe it was only like one or two years ago. What was it like cracking the Cicada code or something like that? It was made by a real big picture or something like that. I mean, a TV company, I think that was tied into like CNN or something like that. I mean, one of the major, you know, uh, ones out there. So there was a lot of money behind this thing. I mean, it was very professionally made. They had 
some pretty senior intelligence officers come on camera to talk about this kind of thing. And it really put a very, you know, just romantic spin on the whole Cicada thing. And I mean, especially this one group that's, you know, still left kind of working on this bizarre grimoire, trying to, you know, crack its mysteries. But yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it almost, in a way, you know, I mean, it kind of shows the, I guess, romantic allure to the Q thing in a sense, you know, I mean, it was kind of a way to recruit a lot of these kind of inspired nerds, if you will, antisocial types, get them working in these tight knit groups on these bizarre mystical texts and so forth. Certainly this whole process was, I'd say, lowered a few levels to accommodate the Q people who certainly were not, I would say, as sophisticated as the audience for Cicada 3301. But yeah, you know, it is sort of interesting how in both cases you kind of gradually saw the injection of this quasi mysticism into these games. I mean, originally Cicada was obviously more about ciphers and that type of thing. Those ciphers, of course, have a long history with occultism as well, at least going back to the Renaissance with John Dee. But, you know, I don't want to get too off topic with that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, kind of the same thing with QAnon. I mean, it was kind of originally centered around the allegations that emerged with Pizzagate and the, you know, Epstein, the elite pedophile networks. And in the case of both, I mean, they sort of gradually almost became a religion almost, you know. But, you know, that's exactly what you need for that missionary zeal. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I looked into Libra Primus a little bit before sitting down with you today, and it looks like the whole thing, as far as I could tell, is written in a runic script of some kind. So you really can't parse it in just a, a cursory glance at all. But it's very interesting, that grimoire aspect. It's like, makes me think about the idea that they could have crowdsourced or attempted to crowdsource their rituals or their connections to demonic entities that many suggest they are connected to. But just wild, because a grimoire is meant for dialing up the spirit world. So I just wonder what that's about. Yeah, you almost wonder, I mean, if it was really to try to subject people to some of the symbols and what have you on like a subconscious level, you know, I mean, that's something that you kind of see with some of these other ARGs. Another one was the Forgotten Languages, I think, website, which has had a couple of strange videos with some of these odd symbols and stuff. But yeah, there is this sort of odd, you know, kind of attempt to, I think, broach the archetypes or something to that effect with this grimoire. Because again, it just seems like the puzzles were almost designed to be unbreakable in a sense, you know, I mean, there's probably people possibly who have been driven insane trying to go through that stuff. But yeah, it is crazy. Yeah, and those connections, of course, if there is something that is co-opted or started by the intelligence community, you're going to see a lot of red herring explanations for how and why it exists. Like you mentioned, the TV company making a little documentary because people will ask questions and as long as they have a nice comfortable answer they'll stop asking so you can spin it off into say oh it was, it was uh, started by this guy or this group and when you dig deeper it doesn't really hold a lot of water but yet the people who are supposedly in charge of this thing have these U.S. intelligence ties you mentioned William Brinney ex-NSA guy you mentioned the Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity group uh, and Robert David Steele, which curiously is a, a, a guest from a few years ago that I interviewed. But he says right in his bio that he's ex-CIA. So 
I don't know. It, it's tough. You you know that these kind of people are playing in the alternative conspiratorial space, and it seems like this was just a massive operation to co-opt the thoughts and feelings and actions of people who are typically skeptical of the establishment and conspiratorially minded. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, you know, I mean, I know uh, Chris Knowles has referred to the Q thing to some extent as a pacification program. I mean, I definitely think, you know, there is some element of that. You know, you could maybe draw some parallels as well to the UFO community. I mean, obviously, that was a whole network that's been so thoroughly penetrated by the intelligence services for decades now. And that has certainly had, I would say, some interesting effects <laughs> on the uh, broader UFO community. And as such, I suppose it's probably not that surprising either that you see so many people drifting into the Q thing. People like Corey Good and Jay-Z Knight and David Wilcox and I would imagine probably a fair amount of their followers as well. But yeah, I mean, you know, this sort of was something that's sort of interesting going back to one of the earlier ARGs, Ong's Hat. That was started by a guy called Joseph Metheny, and it brought in a lot of the major conspiracy tropes of that era. It was like around the late 80s, early 90s when it got going, and especially the Montauk stuff. In fact, Metheny actually wrote a book with one guy, Peter Moon, I think his name is, who um, was really big for spreading the Montauk mythos. Yeah, And they yeah. started incorporating a lot of the Montauk stuff into the Hong's Hat thing, along with you know a lot of the other, I mean, some references like to the Shaver Mysteries to a lot of the big new age tropes, you know, some of the mind control things, some of the remote viewing stuff, so on and so forth. And Metheny is studying all this, and he started to notice that, you know, you would have people drawn into Ong's hat with personalities that could be turned into unstable flights of fantasy through this kind of stuff. So on the one hand, you know, you can draw in people who are highly intelligent, who might be asking questions, and you can basically send them down this, you know, endless thread of false leads and so forth so that they achieve nothing. On the flip side of the coin, you can also rope in people who can be, you know, pushed towards, you know, very antisocial, if not outright dangerous ends as well. Certainly, I mean, just this sort of bizarre blending of fantasy with conspiracy theory, um, you know, can really, really, I mean, mess with people in a profound psychological way on any number of levels. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. And it makes me start to wonder, where is the truth, if any, to these paranormal sagas, these mysteries like Shaver, these things that I'm really interested in and compelled by, maybe by design, but it seems like there's some truth in there somewhere, but I don't know. Are these just globbed onto by the intelligence community? Are they just used as bait? Are they cutting around the truth to form their own narrative? Or is it made completely out of whole cloth by these people? When it comes to some of the deeper mysteries that we would consider esoteric or paranormal, these legends of lore in the paranormal coast-to-coast -coast space... How much truth is there in, in these stories, do you think? Well, I mean, I would say, yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff, especially since the 1980s, is highly questionable. I mean, you know, this is especially obvious in the UFO field, for instance. I mean, a lot of the big tropes that are now just, you know, so significant in UFO circles, Roswell, the Dulce Mythos, Majestic 12, all of that stuff really emerged 
in a very quick succession in the 1980s, largely being promoted by a handful of researchers. And many of these guys, in turn, were being fed information by an informal network of some of them were former intelligence officers, some were still working. But they've been dubbed the aviary, allegedly because of the bird names and so forth that these guys used. And interestingly, a couple of these guys had ties going back to the stuff at, you know, the SRI remote viewing experiments and what have you in the 1970s, which is interesting in light of the guy I was just talking about, Joseph Matheny. Matheny was a good friend of Robert Anton Wilson. And certainly, as I'm sure you're aware, Robert Anton Wilson's book, The Cosmic Trigger, was enormous for bringing to light a lot of the remote viewing stuff to the public for the first time in the mid-1970s. So, you know, Wilson knew all these guys as well. You know, some of these guys ended up in the aviary, spreading a lot of this stuff with Dulce, with Majestic 12 and what have you. At the same token, you had sort of the beginning of these, you know, early ARGs that Joseph Metheny was doing. And I should emphasize, I mean, I don't know that there was a coordinated conspiracy. In fact, I really don't think that there was. But, you know, certainly these guys had rubbed elbows before. And there's kind of this odd thread, I think, of like Rosicrucianism that really runs through this and seems to be an obsession with a lot of these guys. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for those of you like unaware, Rosicrucianism essentially started as a LARP in the early 17th century. There's just absolutely no evidence at all that there was a real Rosicrucian society. Really? No, there's none. I mean, there was kind of an informal network around Tobias Hess and the guy, Johannes Valentinus Andrea, I think. I'm probably butchering that. You, if any of you guys have heard my prior interviews on my podcast, you know I can barely speak English. I'm living in German, so yeah. But anyway, there's no evidence that there was any kind of a Rosicrucian society. It was a LARP, and specifically, you know, this Johannes guy, the main author of them, described the Rosicrucian Manifesto specifically as a game for the curious. And in a lot of ways, that's basically what modern-day ARGs are as well. They're games for the curious. <laughs> Damn. But, yeah. I mean, basically, you know, he brought in all of this hermetic, you know, and Kabbalistic tradition, some of the whole process of theurgy, which was really popular in these, you know, circles coming out of the Renaissance and the early Enlightenment. And they turned it into this manifesto, which was essentially targeted originally for Paracelsian doctors. I mean, there's really no evidence that it was ever supposed to be released to the public at large either. And basically, it was to try to get them to re-embase the spirit of Paracelsius and the concept that the true physician treated the body and the spirit and essentially renew mutual cooperation among physicians that had really been torn down by the Reformation, the dispute between the Protestants and the Catholics and that type of thing. And that was completely lost when the manifestos were released to the public at large in 1614 because tons of people who had no reference point for this type of material started to read them, and they became convinced that, you know, the Rosicrucians really were a thing. And ironically enough, the whole Rosicrucian ideology would have a profound influence on speculative Freemasonry. So, you know, several years later, I mean, you could argue that something very much like the Rosicrucians had come into existence in no small part because of the influence of the Rosicrucian manifestos. But yeah, I mean, it's important to emphasize, you know, there was no Rosicrucian society. (laughs) It was a LARP that effectively became a reality. And I mean, the thing is, you know, when you get into like modern times, you know, you see a lot of these guys talking about their interest in Rosicrucianism. 
that were active in some of these circles. You know, J. Allen Hynek, colleague of Jacques Vallée, has acknowledged interest in Rosicrucianism. I believe Jacques Vallée is also interested in Rosicrucianism. Marion Zimmerman Bradley, the author of The Mists of Avalon, Walter Breen's wife, one of the co-founders of the Society for Creative Anachronisms, who was so active in the whole San Francisco scene, was interested in Rosicrucianism. A lot of these guys had an interest in Rosicrucianism. And I think, honestly, when you see people talk about Rosicrucianism in these kinds of circles, you know, it's basically an acknowledgement of how fiction and fantasy can be used to shape reality. And it does kind of make me wonder, on some level, how many people who were spreading some of these narratives were not necessarily doing them simply for disinformation purposes, though there's certainly that was also a factor as well, no doubt. But I mean, how much of it was to actually affect reality itself? That's kind of an interesting question. Mm -hmm. And look at what's happened to the world in the 21st century, probably far more pertinent. (laughs) Yeah, and it's always sad to me when someone like Robert Anton Wilson, you start to look at the connections and you're like, man, I thought you were a real counterculture figure, but now I'm not so sure. It seems like maybe you were seated to uh, put certain ideas in the counterculture. I just never know. Strange bedfellows, as they say, when you really get deep into these people, whether the person starts as a counterculture figure who writes a few books and then the intelligence communities get interested in them, or if it works the other way, is hard to say. But it just kind of makes me sad when that happens. But with Rosicrucianism, maybe is there something to the building blocks? Because Kabbalism and Freemasonry, those are clearly bodies of knowledge that do have some merit. I mean, Rosicrucianism, I guess, is meant to be another one of these secret societies steeped in the occult, and maybe that was made out of whole cloth, but that doesn't really mean that there isn't something to the broad strokes that connected that material, right? I mean, you think there's something to the occult, or they wouldn't really be so interested in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there definitely is, I mean, a whole element to the occult in it as well. I mean, it's kind of interesting because some of the people with the Rosicrucian you know, kind of involved in the early Rosicrucian movement or the or whatever you want to call it, surrounding manifestos in the 16, you know, teens, the early 20s, would later end up contributing to this interesting church known as the Moravians. The Moravian Church, sometimes they're known as the Bohemian Brethren. But yeah, this whole church just has this bizarre legacy of occultism and just really a profound influence in the Western tradition that's never talked about. But I mean, on the one hand, there was the whole process of theurgy or this, you know, communication with angels that they were so obsessed with. But also later, they seem like they were uh, one of the first sects to really bring sex magic effectively into the Western tradition, which would have been around the 18th century. In the era of Ziffendorf, I think his name was. But yeah, they had these missionaries going to India with the British East India Company. They actually were able to observe Tantra firsthand. They were probably some of the first Europeans. And then going into, you know, this would have been around the middle of the 18th century, they started to come up with this just whole bizarre sexualization, I guess you could say, of the body of Jesus. For instance, the piercing of the side of the Lord with the spears started to be seen as a penetrating sexual act. And they had these visualizations of the side hole. 
later this became seen as somehow possibly a justification for homosexual acts. So yeah, they started to engage in this type of thing. And oddly, you know, this was the church that the parents of William Blake were members of. There is some indication that maybe Blake was <laughs> subjected to some of these things as a child. Certainly one of the paintings that the Moravian Church became quite fixated with was a image of the baby Jesus with an erect penis that the Mother Mary was... Jesus. Well, yeah, <laughs> this was something that they were instructed to visualize. It's really creepy and perverse <laughs> on any number of levels. Um, yeah, so the Moravians had this odd connection to... The Rosicrucian movement in the early days, they later brought in these very strange practices. They may well have been one of the first practitioners of some kind of ritualized sex magic in Europe. They certainly seem to have had a kind of influence on William Blake. And I mean, certainly Blake is very popular in a lot of these circles. There's a reason why Thomas Harris named one of the Hannibal Lecter books after a Blake painting. Yeah, certainly Blake could also be seen as one of the first advocates of transgenderism and that type of thing. Certainly, if you look at his depiction of angels, they are quite androgynous. So, yeah, there is this just really bizarre occult legacy that intersected with the Rosicrucian manifestos, which were kind of a LARP. And in a sense, you know, you could almost maybe look at them as equivalent maybe to the Illuminatus trilogy, which was also a fictional work, but obviously brought in a lot of these, you know, really esoteric ideals that were not widely known to the populace at large into the mainstream. I mean, this is especially true, for instance, of like the Illuminati. I mean, almost all of the modern day, you know, Illuminati mythos really comes from the Illuminatus trilogies. I mean, before that and the whole Operation Mindfuck that the Discordian Society had engaged in, which Robert Anton Wilson was a member of, you know, you really never heard a lot about the Illuminati. And now, yeah, I mean, millions of people believe that they're very much a thing that's practically become a religion in a sense. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it is just strange that you do have this odd overlap between these very, you know, high magical practices effectively. And then, you know, this sort of proto-LARPing and, I guess, science fiction fantasy. <laughs> Wild stuff, man. And you mentioned UFOs a bit earlier. And, of course, you do do a lot of great work covering the goings-on in the UFO space. What are your thoughts on the COVID relief bill, including this provision requiring the Pentagon and various intelligence agencies to reveal what they know about UFOs within 180 days? I think they only have to reveal it to Congress, but of course, that's a lot of people, and so maybe the secret will get out at that point. It's interesting. Maybe it's something that they'll just ignore, of course, you know, there's that possibility, or they're going to spin it off in their own direction. But what are your thoughts on that? What do you think will be different about the world in 180 days in terms of what we know or quote-unquote know about uh, UFOs? Well. You know, I think maybe the world has already been changed to some extent because we've at least been given the bizarre spectacle of Tucker Carlson interviewing Nick Pope on Fox News. I mean, I don't know if I ever thought I would live to see something like that. <laughs> I don't know if a lot of other people did either. So there's that. 
at this point, I'm so disillusioned with the whole UFO thing. I just expect it to be honestly another cock tease, just some other endless rabbit hole to all of this. I mean, it's just one of those things like of all the stuff that you could attach as a writer to like the COVID bill, like, well, just throw UFO disclosure on there. I mean, what the heck? I mean, right. <laughs> it but seemed, again, you it know, seemed odd. And it also seemed strange in the context of a changing administration. It was like, hey, uh, you know, here's this countdown. We're going to put it right on the tail end of this giant transition within the Pentagon and intelligence communities. That timing seemed a little interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was really odd, like you're saying. I mean, just especially with everything going on, that they would just decide to kind of like revive the whole UFO thing. I mean, you know, and then it kind of came also oddly at the time when there was this, I guess, TTSA has sort of had a bit of a split lately as well. And just in general, I mean, within the UFO community, it kind of seems like the only people who are even really excited about this are just you know, really, people have only been following this kind of stuff for like the last couple of years or something like that. I mean, almost all of the older researchers have just become so disillusioned with this stuff that I mean, I don't know if anybody's really taking it seriously. So I mean, I don't even I mean, does anybody even really care? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I think a lot uh, of us know what we need to know about it to a degree, but it's still interesting to follow what they're going to seed as the mainstream narrative. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there is that. And I mean, I guess at this point, you know, for me, at least the major thing is just how this is going to affect the public at large. Or I mean, again, if it'll even happen, I mean, certainly there are so many issues confronting the United States and the world now. I mean, it wouldn't take for much for an emergency to cancel this kind of procedure. And who knows? I mean, that'll be another thing to give life to the disclosure initiative we were that close and then the great cyber attack of 2021 happened and damn it we balked again it was all to stop the truth about the alien space brothers coming out <laughs> and their message of peace and love to humanity um just don't ask them about the jews uh, <laughs> i just say that because i've seen so many channel communications where they bring up anything with the jews it's just like what is this <laughs> yeah yeah well hey another interesting thread you've been covering recently is a strange string of mysterious soldier deaths at Fort Bragg and maybe a few other bases as well. But what are the details here? Because strings of mysterious deaths usually mean something interesting, even though we never really can nail it down exactly. But we had a string of holistic doctor deaths in the previous five years and now that kind of makes a little bit of sense because there's less holistic voices to talk about things going on in 2020 and 2021. But what do you think is up with these deaths and what makes them mysterious? Is it just the number of deaths? Are, are they happening in weird ways? Well, a few of them definitely. I mean, in one case, one of the soldiers was, he was like on a camping trip and he was dismembered. In fact, I think all they found of his body at this point was like his head or something like that. So, yeah, that's a little unusual. Two of the other deaths, I mean, seem to be related to some kind of criminal activity. I mean, some kind of drug deal or something to that effect. Or at least that's, you know, what the media at large is being told. A few of them were suicides. I should probably point out, like, what really drew my attention to these deaths specifically was the fact that they were happening at Fort Bragg. 
And Fort Bragg is the home of the Joint Special Operations Command and the U.S. Army Special Forces. I mean, effectively, all of the elite special operations forces in the U.S. are like garrisons there. So it's interesting in light, on the one hand, because of a lot of the geopolitics playing out right now involving the special operators, especially in terms of some of the moves that Trump made during the last few months of his administration. So, you know, you could kind of wonder, are some of the deaths specifically associated with Fort Bragg related to that? But on the flip side of the coin, too, this was something that came up in a conversation I have with David Metcalf. I mean, you also got to kind of wonder with some of the deaths, especially you know, associated with Fort Bragg and maybe some of the other ones that, because there have been a lot of strange deaths at the military bases in general over the last decade or so, at least. But how much of this is related to, you know, just modifications and stuff that are being done to the soldiers? Obviously, you know, the whole super soldier thing, I mean, it's been in the works for a while now. I've written about how, you know, going back to Project Artichoke, probably one of the objectives of that was to try to craft super soldiers. That started over 70 years ago, so surely they probably made some pretty decent advances since then. How many of these rash of suicides and just strange, you know, deaths and stuff are related to this? I mean, people, their implants or things like that involved, I mean, having them take out if there's some kind of odd drug concoctions or something. I mean, is it related to being taken off this stuff, being put back on other stuff? Who knows? But I mean, it is just odd at this particular time, you know, especially with all of the geopolitics involving Fort Bragg and just some of the other, you know, possibly more sci-fi explanations that you would see all of these deaths coming out right now. Mm -hmm. Very curious. I like the idea of a super soldier program gone bad. I mean, how many people could wake up as some kind of hybrid and end up committing suicide or just manipulated in the mind to a degree that they're like, I got to just end this. Uh, just strange stuff. You mentioned uh, the potential for a gang with occult overtones that has infiltrated the special operations community. That is interesting as well. Yeah, well, I mean, there's been, you know, possibly some indications of that. Really, when you sort of look at some of the stuff with Son of Sam, I mean, obviously, that was more general military as opposed to the special operations community. But, you know, that's something that I've been looking at a lot, kind of going into the Iran-Contra era with the civilian material assistance outfit. I mean, this was a group of veterans, probably with CIA ties via Thomas Posey, that were procuring arms for the whole, you know, the Contras and what have you in Nicaragua. And then related to that was another outfit called the Phantom Division, I believe, which was almost all special operations. But these guys appear to have been, you know, involved in a ton of criminal activity, probably working directly with. Well, I mean, actually, I do have some declassified FBI documents that do strongly indicate that they were working directly with active duty special operations forces and the Green Berets at the time. And the thing about all this is interesting is that the CMA was also tied in to this other group that I've written about and studied for a long time known as the Sovereign Order of St. John. They were actually both implicated in the FBI PATCON investigation. And the Order of St. John, going back to some of its original incarnations of the Shiksini Knights of Malta, just had all kinds of crazy interests. I mean, guys like Cleve Baxter, the guy who claimed to be able to talk to plants and who was also an artichoke or bluebird scientist, rather, was involved with the Order of St. John. 
Philip Corzo wrote The Day After Roswell, was a member of the Order of St. John. They had like an Oregon specialist on their staff. They had this whole interest in UFOs in general, these chivalric orders, the Knights Templar, all that kind of stuff. So there is very much an indication that the Order of St. John was this sort of quasi-cult. It had extensive ties to the U.S. military going back to at least the 1960s. And by at least like the late 1980s, you know, you can definitely see this overlap with these Green Berets, these former special operators and these kind of quasi-militia outfits and groups like the Order of St. John and possibly an even more exclusive outfit known as the White Eagle Lodge, who are all tied into this nexus of criminal activity supporting Iran-Contra. Certainly, I don't think that this network rolled or just went away after the Cold War was over with. And certainly George from KevDef has done some really great research on this and how, you know, probably this whole network was tied into the murder of JonBenet Ramsey and some of this other insanity. So, yeah, it's very unsettling. You know, there are a lot of indications that there is this sort of bizarre cultic network within the military, probably within the special operations community. And I mean, it's been linked into some very nefarious stuff for decades now. Yeah, it's very strange how many authors and witnesses of ufology events end up connected in some regard. Obviously, you mentioned Philip Corso, and it seems like you would cast a lot of doubt on his story and his book because of his connections. When you get to the heart of ufology, what do you think is the kernel of truth there, if any? Is it made out of whole cloth completely? Is it an overlap with the occult that they've just turned into this nuts and bolts thing? Is it the saucers and the crafts that you think is a manipulation? I mean, is the whole thing made up as a LARP? What do you think is the as the truth in the heart of ufology? Is there anything? <laughs> I don't even know really if anybody knows what the truth in ufology is anymore. It's really incredible. But as far as it goes, I mean, yeah, I think there's always been that overlap with the occult. I mean, really, when you go back and look at a lot of the early ufologists and contactees and so forth, I mean, people like George Anninsky, George Hunt Williamson, I mean, almost all of these guys had kind of cut their teeth in theosophy or other kind of occultic practices and so forth. So I think there's always been that overlap, especially with channeling and so forth. And again, I mean, you know, you have that sort of rich history, you know, especially in Western occultism, really going back to John D, you know, so there has been that ongoing legacy of that. And I mean, in some extent, you do have to wonder how much of the earlier communications with angels are now what people think that they're communicating with or UFOs or aliens or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that I am very skeptical of the nuts and bolts explanation of a lot of the the explanations have been put forth for UFOs. But on the flip side of the coin, I am fascinated by Chris Knoll's whole concept of the Roswell working. Yeah. Which I think, you know, potentially what he's been indicating had is that a lot of modern technology did come out of Roswell in some capacity, but it was summoned, as he has often said. So was there some kind of ritual that did provide us with access to this technology? It is sort of interesting when you go back again to John D, that whole communication with the angels back then. I mean, from that point onward, England really became the preeminent superpower in the world. 
And you also had this sort of ongoing process of so much technological innovation that's kind of went hand in hand with these, you know, cultic traditions, especially with communication with, you know, non-human intelligences. So, I mean, I have started to wonder in some level, I mean, is it possible that some of this stuff did come from other sources, I suppose, other than ourselves? I mean, that's definitely a possibility that I think cannot be discounted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of where I take it is my favorite stories are the ones where you hear that these deep state operators are making ritual contact with something else and they're given plans or instructions or technologies that actually end up working when they follow along to what they're told to do. They make something and it works, whether it's the transistor or some kind of AI quantum computer. It's just really fascinating to think, well, what is on the other side of that conversation? What are their true intentions? And do these deep state projects that think they run the show, are they even in control? Or are they being played by something beyond the veil? Yeah, well, that's usually what I tend to lean towards. Something beyond the veil, I think, has been manipulating modern history for a very long time now. I mean, I think probably at least for the last 500 years or so. Ultimately, when you sit down and look at it, I mean, there have just been so much obsession amongst the ruling elites in so many Western nations now for just centuries with these strange traditions and especially um, communication effectively with non-human intelligences. In any cases, you know, I mean, these are people with lots of money going back. I mean, a lot of the early royal society and so forth kind of came out of this occult nexus. I mean, in some extent, modern science could also be attributed to it. But ultimately, I don't think that these kinds of movers and shakers with this sort of power, with this kind of access, would continue to do this stuff year after year for centuries after centuries if it didn't work on some level. You know, that's to me the most logical conclusion to draw from all of it. Yes. Great point. Great point. Uh, but man, this has been really great talking to you. This book brings a lot of things to light and makes a strong case that this history of the special relationship between the right-wing forces of both the U.S. and U.K. are responsible for running a lot of these honeypot operations against their horny political opponents, that these operations have really shaped and compromised our political class, that they're responsible for the rise of Trump and the QAnon LARP to some degree, and the notion that Trump was going to drain the swamp can really be put to rest when you actually comb through all this historical context. And as you say, when we know that context, it's no surprise that there is an incredible overlap between the families linked to Profumo and the names in Epstein's Black Book, the Churchills, Astors, Goldsmiths, Gettys, Hambrose, Mountbatten's, Burleys, McMillan's, and Kennedy's all appear in both scandals. And that is no small thing. Hard to dismiss that. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And I mean, I just kind of think it's just part of a broader legacy of how the ruling elite of the UK and probably to some extent, the US have been molded. I mean, just, you know, look at the quote unquote, public school system. And I mean, how many people who went through those in the UK, went through just horrendous abuse, both sexually and physically as children. And I mean, this is what they were using to mold the future leaders of the empire. 
you know, that kind of tradition was brought to some extent to the elite prep schools and what have you that we have here in the U.S. that our own future rulers are sent to. So, I mean, it's just this disgusting culture that's really been institutionalized in the ruling elite for quite a considerable amount of time now. And I think it's a big part of why there are so many sociopaths, if not outright psychopaths, running the world today. Mm, I concur. But it is impressive work, man. So detailed and a very important history lesson for people. Before we close it out, remind folks where they can get the book, when the next one's coming out, and what's going on with the podcast, all that good stuff. All right. Well, you can get both of the books at Amazon right now. Also, I would strongly urge you guys to check out my podcast. That is thefarmpodcast.com. You know, we've got all kinds of great guests on there. Christopher Knowles. I've had Gordon White on. Of course, as I mentioned before, Robert Guffey, Peter Robbins, Douglas Valentine, Richard B. Spence. And more recently, start to do a subscriber section with exclusive guests and content. You know, I've already had Knowles on there. I've had Adam Go Rightly, Greg Bishop, more Richard B. Spence. And I've got some great guests lined up in the futures. And there's also exclusive content in there as well. I had a great episode in there about the early histories of ARGs with David Metcalf, who's known Joseph Metheny for a while. So that kind of gives you an insider account on how all this stuff came to be, you know, the possibility of it being linked to Cambridge Analytica and that type of thing. So, you know, definitely consider checking me out there. And the next book that I'm working on is kind of going to be into the secret history of conspiratainment. I'm going to get into some of the Rosicrucian stuff that I've been talking about here. The origins of the QAnon thing, the kind of history of ARGs, and uh, of course, all things Discordianism. Lots of stuff on Discordianism and the insane amount of influence that it has had on culture at large. If you're a fan of like 80s counterculture, I mean, I'm going to get into all this stuff. The Church of the Subgenius, Chaos Magic, the Temple of the Psychic Youth. It's going to be pretty crazy. It's definitely one of the strangest things that I've ever tried to do. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's going to be really cool. And then I'm also trying to work on a documentary on top of everything else, too. So staying busy and also helping the Penny Royal guys with their whole thing. Again, you know, I love stuff with mythology. And they definitely have some great takes on that. So check out Penny Royal, too, folks. Awesome, man. Sounds fun. I look forward to it. Always a pleasure to talk to you again. Take care out there and keep fighting the good fight. Thanks so much for having me back on, man. Always a pleasure to talk to you as well. Cheers. There we go. All right, guys. Always a good time with Recluse. Glad he is taking this mountain of research that he really knows like the back of his hand and finding a way to monetize it in book form. Two books so far and at least two more in the works. God, I am jealous of his ability to knuckle down like that. I just don't have it. But a guy who is this knowledgeable and this dedicated definitely deserves to make a living from his work compared to what's passing for journalism out there these days. And I know we've talked about the Perfumo affair with him before, and this release is a little close to the Philip Fairbanks episode, which was a similar type of subject matter. But I am conscious of these things, enough that I try to make sure, even if we're in the same ballpark, we're covering different threads and new information. Plus, I like to be good to people who have been good to me, and Recluse has given us some awesome shows in the past. 
The first two, I don't even think he had anything out there to promote, really. Just his free blog. So I think it's only right in this kind of situation where a colleague does release something that we give him the old THC bump, right? It would be weird to say, eh, can't help you. We've milked that cow. <laughs> but it is a great book, and as sharp as his recall for detailed connections is, it's even sharper in writing. And when I saw his blog post titled The Game and this breakdown of Q as something related to the Zakata 3301 thing, I was really impressed by that. I guess some people are talking about it, but I guess I hadn't really come across it until his post. Maybe you guys have, but it makes a lot of sense to me. The use of 4chan, the general mystique, the timeline works out pretty well. The whole theme of cracking the code and sort of setting people up to self-congratulate themselves over it. To get them swept up in something that feels super important. I think it's a compelling case, and I knew that was going to be at least fresh material for us, and I wanted to make sure we hit it right up at the top. And it is disappointing to me, because I kind of wanted Cicada 3301 to be something more. I liked the mystique around it and the mystery. But that's how it's designed, right? You're supposed to want to tumble down that rabbit hole. And I was reading some random comments about this possible connection, and someone mentioned that apparently Whitney Webb has done some investigating of an Obama administration official, they didn't give a name, that had the idea of infiltrating the conspiracy community to convert them to being pro-government. Which is an odd thing to want to do or try to do. But I'm definitely going to ask her about that next time we talk. And if it is just one big club and party doesn't really matter, then sure. It's at least an indication that the idea was floated out there. And look how it worked out. And talking to Recluse about it a little bit was cathartic for me because at least I feel as if this is me putting the QAnon thing to bed. And I'm pretty happy with myself that I don't have to issue a big apology about my behavior in the Trump years. Some of my fellow podcast hosts drank that Kool-Aid pretty hard, as did some people who used to be some of my favorite guests, sad to say. And it's not about me, but I do remember before Trump was even elected, Sam Tripoli had me on and he asked about it, and I said, you know, it's really weird actually. Everybody feels frustrated and unrepresented by the options we're given every election, and every campaign has a target. I think I actually said they cast nets to capture certain kinds of people, and for some reason the Trump campaign had cast a net with a conspiracy enthusiast-shaped pattern. I mean, we all saw that. It's nothing groundbreaking, but I did consider it a targeted effort from the beginning rather than something genuine. You always got to reject those savior motifs, but the things I found most interesting about the Trump QAnon material in general, or just his election, is really things like the Baron Trump Hollow Earth book, which someone did remind me in the third book in that series, it's called The Last President, and there is a riot that isn't exactly on the day, but it's really early in January in the book world, and it's a pretty close match for something that was written decades ago. But that and the Sonora Aero Club airship image that said Trump across the top and the number 45 or 4500 series, I think it is, those things are eerie. 
Is it just the echoes of a potent era picked up by artists in the past and potentially future, just like 9-11 references? Something that grabs so much attention that it sends ripples out in both directions through the collective unconscious? I don't know. Or maybe the Sonora Aero Club images aren't as old as reported. Maybe they were part of the whole thing. The ARG, as Recluse would say. But if they were a setup for Q, you'd think they'd be less obscure. I mean, who talks about the Sonora Aero Club images except us, really? And then, of course, the MIT uncle who had access to Tesla's work has to make you think. But that's really the only parts that I was truly interested in. Draining the swamp is just typical political rhetoric. The whole idea of untangling the dark aspects of child abuse, human trafficking, and child abuse-based honeypot blackmail operations from government and intelligence agencies was never something that rang true to me, because it's too foundational to the way these groups operate. It's like, once you know nuclear weapons exist, or do they, but let's just say they do, and they work really well for what you want to do, you can't just get rid of them and pretend they don't exist. What I'm saying is that once they know they can completely compromise and control politicians and influential CEOs by getting them hammered and bringing some underage kids to the party in a surveillance mansion late into the night, there is zero chance they're going to stop doing it. And I wish it wasn't like that, but I think a lot of us know that it is. So anytime we have this kind of, we're going to change things once and for all and forever kind of rhetoric, I definitely do a hard eye roll. Because things have never really changed. I like talking to people like Recluse and many of our guests so that I can get a more accurate and raw look at the way things actually work. Not because I think we're going to topple it all, and I believe that we can all navigate reality better if we have a truer picture of it, even if that means knowing that it's fucked forever and it's best just to keep it all at arm's length. When you know the kind of things we've been talking about on THC for a full decade now, it seems to me like you should never get caught up in any of these official narratives or the goings-on of the political circus. If we've never even seen a real 9-11 investigation, we can pretty much give up hope of anything more radical than that. And I'm not trying to be a downer. It's actually a positive thing for the individual because we stop putting our confidence and hopes and dreams in places they don't belong. Stop pushing the boulder up the impossible hill thinking this time it's going to be different and all that. Nobody is coming to help us. Take charge of your own life and make it the best you can. Be the head of your own pyramid, as I had encoded on one of the t-shirt designs for the THC store. Actually, it's kind of funny, because that shirt, which is one of my favorites, it sort of has a Cicada 3301 style to it, especially the B part. But the message is pretty much the polar opposite. I don't know, I don't talk much about the merch store for THC and the designs we have there, but check it out. That is a good one. As for higher side news, I've been spending a lot of time learning these new encrypted community platforms. No Agenda has one through a Mastodon instance. Gramerica has a Mastodon instance and a Mattermost server. RuneSoup has the Ansible based on one of these open source encrypted platforms. And I don't want to be left behind, so I got to keep an eye on these things. Because we just have the boring old forum. 
Or so I thought, and this is kind of embarrassing, but all this time, I've had it for years and I've never really dug into the forum all that much. I kind of built it for you guys. So plus people could find each other and support each other and we could get off Facebook, etc., etc. And it never really took off, but I got in there the other day and realized that it's a lot more robust of a platform than I initially thought. I've never been a big forum guy myself, but when I actually got under the hood of this thing, it is a full social media platform, even outside of that forum component. It's got profile pages, just like Facebook. It's got the ability to write statuses that can be liked and commented on, just like Facebook or Twitter. It's got a news feed on the sidebar that shows the latest statuses of all members. And I had forgotten that at the time, I paid extra for the media add-on. So it has this whole section for sharing images and videos that can also be browsed in a big list rather than going to each individual post and thread. It kind of aggregates all the media that anyone is posting. And then you can sort by how many likes these videos have gotten, and that makes it just like Reddit. So I don't know, it's just really eye-opening how we already have this tool right there, and I think it's going to be what I use from now on. If I think of something that would make a good tweet or I stumble on a video that I want to share with you guys, I'm just going to be putting it there rather than trying to build some new community platform from scratch. Because our forum has over 10,000 members already. Remember that anyone who's ever had a THC Plus account, even for just one month, has access to that. And their username and password still work even if they canceled their membership to the Plus Show itself. And on top of everything, the forum platform I use did just get a huge update, and they included a mobile app for free. I haven't really worked through it, I haven't configured it all yet, but it looks really great on mobile. And even if you've ever had just a website in your mobile browser and then used the Add to Home Screen option, that's what I did just in the meantime, and it's really slick, just as nice as anything, and I already paid for it, and we're already 10,000 strong. Now, if I only had 10,000 active THC members, I'd never have another money concern in my life, but that's a different story and a different goal of mine to work towards. I'm already working on getting the right crystals, so <laughs> don't worry about me. But just the fact that Sense Plus started several years ago, 10,000 people have thought it was worth it to jump in, even temporarily, and that's something that I am very thankful for. But let's get in there at thehiresideforum.com and make it a fun place to be. Forget Telegram and Gab and all these new things. We already got something, and it's private, and I'm in control of it, and it's outside the prying eyes of your Facebook friends and family and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to tweak some things to make it even better add some new threads maybe, but we're in a good place with it already. If you've never been a Plus member and you listen to the first free hour, sometimes for years, haven't I earned it yet? Don't we need to invest in things we find valuable so that our only options aren't the products and services of the big machine? I get a lot of emails where people say, hey, I love your show, never been a Plus member, but you should get this guest back on. And I'm like, how about you sign up for Plus and there's a whole nother hour show where they already were on and you just haven't heard it yet. 
I say this all the time, but I purposely don't tease you with the plus show. I try to make the free show seem complete. And that's kind of to my detriment because people don't realize what they're missing. And I'm telling you, it's a lot. <laughs> In the plus show today, we talked about the left wing Q-like ARG, the World Commerce Corporation, drug running and big pharma, looted Nazi assets, early drug running stories that we probably haven't heard way before the CIA cocaine thing, the figure in history best described as a conspiracy theorist's wet dream come to life, high strangeness at Loch Ness, Stephen Ward, black magic sex parties, and the proto-Epstein, the two Ward girls that ensnared JFK, Robert Maxwell, the Maxwell sisters, and software backdoors, GME, internet blackouts, and an online ID, and of course, of course, what conversations complete without a little bit about Westworld Season 3. We covered it all. Where are you? So you can get all of that and hundreds of extra hours with all of our previous guests, the whole THC forum platform, the songs I use for the end of the show, and the joint session bonus shows, which, by the way, leave me a message at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail, and I'll probably play it on the next one, which will be in just a few days. <laughs> I'm all fired up. I haven't really recorded in a while. I've been kind of just sitting around the house, desperate for outside human contact. But that's the show. I thought it was a good one. Not too sure about Recluse's take on the Rosicrucian thing. Maybe he's right. I guess I hadn't even really ever considered that it wasn't a real organization. Does that make the Sir Francis Bacon stuff just lore? I mean, it has a lore-like feel and mystique to it, but still. I guess it is sort of what Court Lindahl gets into with the Arcadian mysteries and American lore seeding. So maybe it's not completely outside of the box, but who knows what's real anymore? I'm glad we could talk about the Q thing and the Capitol incident. Most people are probably sick of hearing about it, and I just wanted to get a conversation like this on the record, in the archive, and then leave it be. Maybe I'm too optimistic in thinking that the Q phenomenon is fizzling out. Recluse certainly doesn't think so. Or at least he thinks that there will be another incarnation. Q2 the squeak wool. But I have never been one to obsess about this thing, and I'm sure... Even the capital event talk will ruffle some feathers because so many people think it's dangerous to even consider the story to be different than presented on TV. The election is the same story, but I am not invested in any narrative around these two topics. I'm not emotional about considering any angle or really anything our guests are going to say. Honestly, I don't care if you lean left or right. None of this government represents us or the way we would prefer to govern and interact with the world. So stop drawing the line between left and right and redraw it between the elite and the rest of us for the umpteenth time. And when I start saying totally obvious things, I know it's time to wrap it up. But thanks again to Recluse. Thanks to you guys. I'm getting out of here. Your move, honeypot operators, deep state deceivers, and internet code crackers. Your fucking move. Sweet dreams to the elite. We're calling them out on THC. Uncovering secrets and conspiracies. Everybody's looking for something. Some of them want to use you.